don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 11. And today we have kind of an eco-terrorism extravaganza going on. Uh, talking about If a Tree Falls, a story of the Earth Liberation Front from 2011, directed by Marshall Curry. Uh, Night Moves from 2014, directed by Kelly Reichardt. And The East from 2013, talk, er, directed by Zal Batmanglidge. Batmanglidge? I'm not sure how you say it. I've never heard it pronounced, so I'm just going to butcher it. Um, so three films that all deal with eco-terrorism or environmental so, activism. So-called eco-terrorism. So-called, quote-unquote, eco-terrorism. Um, and full disclosure, I did not watch The East for uh, time management reasons, <laughs> but you did, so uh, we'll let you take the lead on that one. But I did watch Antonio the other two. Banderas. You did watch Take the Lead. Yeah, I did watch that one. Uh, <laughs> and Out to Sea for some reason. Uh, Out to Sea? What is that? It's the Jack Lemmon, Arthur uh, Mathel cruise You watched movie. that? Uh, yeah, I've seen it in the past. It was just, for some reason, the first movie that came to mind uh. when I was trying to think of some <laughs> joke film. Um, so, I did watch Night Moves and If a Tree Falls, and I will say that If a Tree Falls kind of lived up to what I kind of expected it to be, which is this Oscar-nominated documentary about this really, about um, Daniel McGowan, this, this activist who's on trial and it it brings together all these threads that we'll talk about of um, environmental activism and terrorism and the role of the government and all that sort of stuff. That's a sort of great unseen in that you know it, uh, it does, it's not super explicit about uh, the legal system but that is a huge player in that movie. Yeah and then uh, Night Moves not what I expected at all. It's kind of I expected this kind of dark indie film, which it is. Sort but of Bob Seger music video. Yeah, but it ended up being a bit more intense and and kind of bigger than I thought it would be. Um, I mentioned before we started that I didn't think it was that long, but it felt like it just lasted forever, which is was, not not a knock. It on was it. just shy of two hours. Yeah. yeah, and that's not a knock on it. It's just I expected it to be kind of more short and sweet. And the, the climax is not what you think the climax would be of the film, I would say. Yeah, I, uh, I finished it less than an hour ago, and I think uh, I, I was surprised, like you said, um, about the scope of the story. I had, uh, the only Kelly Reichardt movie I'd seen was Wendy and Lucy, which I thought was so smart and so cool and uh, but it's, it's so small scale and and most of uh, Night Moves is pretty small scale and then it gets a little bit bigger and it gets a little maybe even just the teensiest bit superficial uh, at the end it, it, it just went to places I was not expecting it to go and not necessarily in a good way Not not like not like it was ahead of me, but like I was yeah. expected a little more than, and that sounds like I'm not gonna. I was very into this movie, but the it just went in a in a direction I was not expecting. Yeah, it kind of ends up being 
you think it's going to be one type of story and then it's a very different type of story by the time you get to the end of it. Um, so I, I guess we'll just start by talking about If a Tree Falls because that can set us up for some of these other things and also just liked it a lot. Yeah, um, and I'd never heard of it until you suggested it, recommended it, and uh, and you, if I'm not mistaken, you recommended it independent of this podcast. It was just like... Something you mentioned a, a yeah. while ago. I was like, hey, I heard this is supposed to be pretty good. I haven't seen it yet, but... Yeah, and I was uh, I was riveted. Yeah, so, it, like we mentioned, uh, nominated for Best Documentary at the Oscars. Um, some of the music's done by The National, uh, which is interesting just because I like The National. And uh, Daniel, not Daniel McGowan, Marshall Curry, the director later did uh, Mistaken for Strangers, which is the documentary about the National, uh, if you're interested in some of his, his lighter fare, uh, because this is, is not light at all. And so it's the story of not really the foundation of the Earth Liberation Front, I think that's why the subtitle is clever of A Story of the Earth Liberation Front, because it's sort of just a, it's a big part of that history, I guess, but it's really only about a handful of the people involved, like it's six or eight. Yeah. Um, and we start with Daniel McGowan, who's the the focus character, the terrorist, the, the terrorist in the eyes of the government, as the terrorist. Um, and it's kind of interesting where we start out because we see him on house arrest at his sister's apartment, awaiting trial um, for these, you know, acts of uh, property destruction. I want to emphasize because that's important. Um, and he just sort of seems just like a normal. Kind of frumpy dude. He's hand washing Ziploc bags to reuse them, um, and that's kind of where we—that's our introduction to him. And he just kind of describes himself, and he's a pretty normal seeming guy. Yeah, and I think that's definitely the aim of the filmmaker throughout throughout the whole movie is just to create this image of this guy as extremely, <laughs> extremely normal. Uh, yeah, you know. He just seems like somebody you know. And throughout the film, I don't know if you noticed this, but he doesn't really talk about environmental issues very much. No, and it when he does, it's more like he's just assuming you know what he's talking about. He's yeah. like, I was very affected by this film, you know, some documentary he saw, and so I had to do something. But he's not, like, preaching to the camera, you know? No. Um... And we learn that he's on trial because him and um, I forget exactly how many others, like six to eight people, uh, committed these arsons. And they burnt down a number of, of businesses, uh, business offices, I should say, not the entire business. They would target like the head office or whatever it would be. Um, and what eventually gets them is that they burn down a tree nursery and a building at the University of Washington uh, both of them, they admit later on, kind of on bad information. So yeah. they ended up what yeah, they, they thought up they the were fighting the library against. and everything. Yeah, yeah, and what they thought they were fighting against was not even really occurring there. Um, they thought the the nursery was like producing special trees, like genetically engineered trees for lumber harvesting, and they thought like a specific professor at the University of Washington was working with some sort of you know, government thing to do some some environmental evil 
Um, and so in both those cases kind of get away from them and then they and well and had no one you know had no one been hurt during that it wouldn't have been as big a deal as it was oh, oh. wait no one was <laughs> hurt by it ever by anything they did yeah so they rack up you know millions of dollars of property damage but they never kill anyone they don't even injure anyone um, from what I remember uh, they always make sure that no one's around they do surveillance to make sure no one's there and then they destroy the the buildings and the vehicles and that sort of stuff. And that, because that's true, um, and and obviously, like you said, this is a slice of, of Earth Liberation Front and and environmental activism. Uh, but because, <clears throat> but because that's largely true, there's something a, a little bit disingenuous about both the East and Night moves in their uh, kind of emphasis on violence against people through environmental activism it seems to be kind of a focus in both of these in both of the fictional movies um, you know about the cost to human life and of course it's a, an explicit goal of we see in if a tree falls of the ELF to specifically not harm human life or any life and in fact they're that's what they're trying to protect um, is all life and so again I don't know the the ins and outs of you know all environmental activism and, and how many you know what the death toll is but I, I, I think most of the uh, people who who are environmental activists are pretty at least decently uh, smart people, educated people, and that's sort of how they get into these actions. And so, the, the uh, it seems to me they're well aware of the hypocrisy that would result from harming human beings. Yeah, and, and that's why I say it's a little bit disingenuous that that both the East and Night moves um, take as at least part of their subject matter, you know, the the issue of. Environmental activists harming human beings. Yeah, and in, in uh, if a tree falls, when you see some of the the elf uh, sort of <clears throat> propaganda videos, I guess, or or videos that are released by the the kind of publicity wing of it that is explaining their mission. Um, there's a guy that says very explicitly, like, make sure that no matter what action you take, that you don't harm any life in in doing it. Um, which is exactly what they did and like you say like these are people that are not only very driven but they're very usually very educated or at least very educated about the things that they're looking into sure um, because we do run into some characters um well real life people and if a tree falls i mean i can't remember his name but the the guy that ends up snitching on, on everyone else is it jake something something like that who is um it seems like he's kind of was always sort of the the overly edgy one um just like a like a punk rocker just sort of looking for some sort of context through which to channel his you know anger his or whatever rage, would be yeah, yeah. Um, and, and i will say that is a i think that is a recurring theme in all three of these movies is identity the role sort of yeah. identity plays in shaping and how much of it is you really believe in these things and want to accomplish these goals and how much of it is you know, this is posing. cool. Like, yeah, yeah. posing. Like, yeah. The, this is this is radical, so I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how, uh, you know, Daniel McGowan and all these other people end up 
going to trial or getting sentenced at the end of the, the film and sort of revealed how, how much time they get is because this guy was, he folded, um, c- confessed to the FBI or CIA, or was, I guess the FBI, and um, they turned him into a... Wore a wire. Wore a wire, and they flew him around the country. Because all these people, they, they more or less got away with it, separated, went you know back to whatever lives they were wanted to make for themselves, and so they fly him around the country to entrap these people. Um, and it worked. And it <laughs> Weirdly. Was, it was... They played the tapes... You know, of the the guy wearing the wire, yeah. and McGow- Daniel McGowan. And if you had seen this in a fictional movie and listened to the dialogue, it would have it would you would have said that's, fu- that's like it's too explanatory. Like he's being McGowan's being too obvious. He's too he's being too incriminating of himself. Yeah, it's like that bad. The stuff yeah, he's yeah. saying to him. Yeah, but he thought he could trust it because he thought, well, you did it too. Like right. he, he didn't never thought that. Because and that's that goes back to this identity thing is throughout the film McGowan is very clear of like I'm not going to work with the government I'm not going to take a plea deal I'm going to you know stand up for what I believe in and you know I'll suffer the consequences that kind of thing um, and he expected everyone else to do the same and he learns sort of but then, one but by then, one that they are doing that but then he does yeah and then he does at the end yeah yeah he's sort of I guess one of the last holdouts but eventually he's like okay. I, if yeah. I don't take this, I'm going to spend my life in prison. And, and yeah, you're right. He was like the last holdout. So it's like, what's he holding out for? Um, only, you know, all he would do is prolong suffering of himself and his family. And he'd already proven his point in some ways. Yeah. So I should have done more research on this, but I was really interested in the fact that I think they said the prison he goes to is in Illinois, and it was constructed post nine eleven specifically yeah. to house terrorists. Yep. <laughs> special. He went to special terrorist prison, and and that is that is why the semantics of this plays such a big role. You know, you think about how many teenagers have like burned down a house and and gone to juvie, and you know. It's like, how is that property damage and how is this terrorism? And obviously this is like the main issue I suspect we'll be talking about tonight. But I think once you get into, I I think the reason is that it's ideological. You know, a a 17-year-old fucking around with fireworks and burning down someone's house in our neighborhood is not ideological. It's just stupid carelessness <laughs> yeah. you know but when when it's premeditated and it's uh, motivated and it is countercultural you know it's so so just clearly intentional then it's terrorism you go from carelessness to terrorism um, and, and I remember thinking you know what are they burning capital yeah you, when you the, I mean, there's people who have murdered people who get less jail time, and you just gotta wonder. Like, I, I guess in capitalism, when you destroy capital, it's a <laughs> capital offense. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, 
you just wonder how how this uh, you know how what propels this legal system where people's lives are subject to these clearly flawed uh, laws almost said rules but laws and you learn so you learn at the end that McGowan gets McGowan McGowan I can't remember how they pronounce it in the film I'm just going to say McGowan like Rose McGowan yeah um, but they he gets sentenced to seven years right in 2007 I should have looked up I guess he's out should be out yeah. and about because he was on at least with the house arrest he got off early because of good behavior because why wouldn't he that's another point I wanted to make um, here's how you know he's not actually a terrorist when's the last time you saw Timothy McVeigh on house arrest Osama Bin Laden on house arrest you think if the if you know if the government catches an actual terrorist they're gonna slap an ankle bracelet on him and let him go stay at his sister's apartment that's <laughs> insane and yet he's going to the same prison yeah it's just crazy so he gets seven years at this special terrorist prison because not only was he convicted of the, the property destruction, but they also hit him with a, what they call, I believe, the terrorist extension or something like that, which is saying, like, it's a post-9-11 Homeland Security thing where not only did you destroy this property, but you did so for these terroristic reasons. Um, and seeing what see, I found... See, and, but that, that's, that, see, I mean, that's very interesting. That's what I mean by ideological. It's like... Okay, if, if the problem is that a facility burned down, what does it matter if it's some stupid teenagers fucking around or, or uh, environmental activists? If, you know, that, that seems like it should not factor in to sentencing. Unless someone is injured, right? So, like... Right, well, uh, yeah. Which they weren't. Right, and then it would be, you know, involuntary... Manslaughter. manslaughter or something like that but but they weren't and so it just it, it's kind of to, to sort of continue out this analogy that it's you know not a perfect one let's say teenagers burn down a building on accident with fireworks and they kill someone they kill like a night guard it's manslaughter right it's not murder if and, ELF, and the word terrorism would never be used yeah ELF burns it down for their ideological purposes and they accidentally kill a night watchman or whatever that's going to be prosecuted as murder yeah, um, and probably like murder one or something, and that and that's such an abstract thing to base um, litigation on, you know, ideological motivation. Yeah, it's how a, do you prove it's that intent, right? And, so, and, well, it's not even how you prove it. It's how can you prove that one is worse than the other? You know, and, and it becomes this utterly unscientific. Um, issue that that cannot be meaningfully debated in in court. Well, it's it's one reason I thought listening to some of the other people talk in in the documentary was uh, really kind of illuminating. Um, so we get all these clips of different things. One of them was that uh, it was a series of clips from the World Trade Organization protests in Seattle in '99. Which is pretty intense. And they show, the reason they mention that is because they focus a lot on the, the black block going around and, and breaking windows and stuff like that and throwing tear gas back at the cops, which to me is like, I was like clapping when I saw that. I was like, yeah, fuck. <laughs> um, 
And they're doing it, and this is still a debate that that comes up on the left a lot of like how, how what part should violence play, if any, especially or not even especially, but um, to consider it like in terms of property violence, violence against capital, that sort of thing. Um, and you see that scene where the a black block guy like breaks a Starbucks window with a crowbar or whatever. And there's a guy behind him yelling at him, and he's like, people work hard for their property! And he's like, this guy has no stake in it, other than he's like, this is wrong to destroy other people's property. It reminds uh, me It reminds me of a movie we've talked about a few times, Hell or High Water, yeah. where the, the citizenry, just like without any um, concrete up. motivation posses up and starts hunting down these people and they're they, they don't realize like they're kind of working on behalf of the banks that that have been robbed in this yeah. movie and and yet you see the sort of desolation of this town at the hands of the bank and so yeah it, i mean it's a good picture of sort of politics now but yeah to to see someone fighting for the force that keeps them down. You, it's just a real testament to the uh, success of the propaganda machine. You know. Yeah, and it, it came up um, back when uh, everything was happening in Ferguson. Um, some of the demonstrators there burnt down a CVS or attacked a CVS, like damaged the CVS in some way, and everyone took that to mean like look at these savages destroying their own neighborhood. And I always thought, like, that CVS is not part of the neighborhood. Like, there's nothing about that CVS that says, this is where I, this is my home, this is where I live. Like, that is that is an emblem of this corporate capitalism yeah. that is just trying to... Corporate colonialism. Yeah, just yeah. trying to dip its tentacle into every different pie it can get to. Yeah. So when that when the CVS gets destroyed, I don't think, oh, how terrible. I think, fuck that CVS. Yeah. I'm glad should have never that. been there. Um, <clears throat> yeah, in, in any in any issue related to social change, the debate will arise. That is Martin versus Malcolm. Yeah, you know, peaceful, nonviolent protest versus direct action, uh, any means necessary. And in a lot of ways, all three of these films are about that and I think the most effective one well if a tree if a tree falls I think it's the most effective one but of the two fiction films I think Night Moves is much more effective and in like a very very small scene that just uh, where the the guy who owns the uh, sort of organic vegetable I, got, I mean, I guess it's a commune, but it's like clearly a capitalistic enterprise. You yeah, know, they're, they're just selling like their vegetables, selling their surplus for money. Uh, you know, it reminds me of, of uh, Captain Fantastic that way. <clears throat> but um, yeah, he says the guy who owns the, the place says, you know, just makes the argument that it doesn't matter. Uh, you know this this terrorist in quotes act doesn't really matter um, it's just theater yeah. and 
and what he's doing, you know, trying to change the way people <clears throat> consume is a much more meaningful. Uh, it's, he says it's slower, but it's much more meaningful. And so I, I, I'm a little bit conflicted about that, but ultimately I think I side with him uh, because in, in a lot of ways I think that what he's doing is more encompassing and, and in some ways is more radical because it's asking people to change, not, not to pay attention to some, to some act uh, which is an abstract thing and requires them to do nothing more than watch TV. Um, but he's asking them to change everything about the way they live, essentially. How they, what, I mean, literally what they eat, where they get it from, uh, how, you know, how business is run. It has to be slower. It has to be more local. And that, that implies a, a, a radical, reimagining of the economy and this is everything Wendell Berry is <laughs> I mean this is uh, by no means unique to this film but uh, I do think in a lot of ways that on, on a big enough scale that is more radical than blowing up a dam yeah and <clears throat> so in Night Moves the whole kind of thrust of it is that these three people get together and they they fill a bow with explosives and blow up a dam. That's kind of the central event of the whole thing. Uh, the boat named Night Moves. And we'll talk more about the boat because I thought that was an interesting kind of symbol. But um, Jesse Eisenberg's character, Josh, lives on this kind of commune farm thing. And after this event happens, he's kind of sitting, eating breakfast in the kitchen and listening to people talk about it. And that's when the, the owner guy is like, well, this is this isn't you know what we should be doing and the, the younger kid says well well you want you know activism what do you call this he's like i call this theater right mm-hmm. so th- this is nothing more than show yeah and, he, like, and i like that he doesn't take a moral stance on it. he doesn't say oh this is wrong someone's going to get hurt which of course they did in, yeah. the, in the narrative but it's a logical argument it's saying this does not matter one you know there's 12 dams in this city uh yeah uh, or on this river this doesn't make any difference He's, it's not a moral argument and then, and then later in the film when he sort of learns that you know Josh has, has been involved in this and he confronts him about it um, his response is well, do you, you know, I need you to leave because I don't want to be implicated in this I don't want to you know, harbor you know, a, a criminal and he says something that kind of stuck with me which is do you know how long it took me to build this like how long it took us to get this mm-hmm. established, and now you're going to tear it all down, and just show, and like he says, you know, this is the slower form of of activism and changing the way that people think and people live, um, and in a lot of ways, it's the more difficult one because mm-hmm. all you know, years of work and money you have to pour into it, and effort and finding the land and all this sort of stuff versus <coughs> they spend what two days to blow up this dam. Right, and it's it's really um, getting into Rob Nixon territory, where slow violence is countered with slow healing. You know, it's not you do not fight slow violence with spectacular immediate violence, uh, and and really to you're really just kind of playing into that 
paradigm if you if you if you do that. Uh, but you know, other perspectives are given in that in that movie. You have the younger kids in the in the commune saying. I'm, I, uh, one guy says, "I side with the water on this one." Yeah, you know, he, basically his point is like, "Yeah, sometimes you got to fuck shit up." Yeah, and and, and I have sympathy for that. Yeah, and he's talking too. about specifically yeah. about uh, when they blow up the dam, even though they they try to take every you know uh, precaution to make sure they don't hurt anyone. They end up killing a guy who is camping downriver, and he gets drowned by the water that's released. And, you know, they really said in the news, and that's when the kid says, well, I side with the water on this one. Like, you know, it sucks that guy died, but sometimes, you know, you have to crack a few eggs. Yeah, and they, <clears throat> the, the phrase, one one person, keeps getting repeated. Yeah. One person, like. And I think that's one of the clever parts of the story, is that you could have made it, like, a family camping down river, then obviously what they did was wrong, but if you make it just a solitary guy who's, you know, an accident. Um, and the kid even says, like, well, I would just camp on higher ground to make sure that didn't happen. Um, and then the youngest kid says, I'm never going camping again. Yeah, yeah. Which I thought was an interesting He's like, I'll just sleep uphill. Um, I thought, uh, I really thought that the guy who died was going to be the weird guy that they run into right before they you know, <laughs> do it. I really thought, because, because I thought it would be a pretty good move and be kind of tragic because they kind of laugh at him because yeah. he's kind of goofy and how terrible they would feel it's just utterly harmless kind of weird goofy character who just wanted to talk to them who just wanted like, to talk to had a pretty interesting life and it was like okay <laughs> and they just totally ignore him and then he leaves was like take care and and had that blown him I, I really thought that's what was, was going to happen that would have been a nice touch um, but yeah that, all the build up to that and this is kind of what I was talking about when I said that it it starts out as one movie and then kind of transfers into another because the blowing up the dam happens pretty early on, like maybe halfway through the movie. Yeah, like nar- narrative-wise, it kind of reminded me of the movie Room with Brie Larson where g- going into it, I thought like the escape was going to be the whole yeah. point, the climax, but it's actually like what happens midway through and then you see them sort of dealing with, with that central event. And Night Moves is the exact same way. Yeah. And they, so early on, uh, we meet, you know, Josh, which is Jesse Eisenberg's character, Dakota Fanning, playing Dina, um, who goes a long way, I think, in what we were talking about of identity and, like, why are people, what are people's motivations for doing these things? And then Peter Sarsgaard is, is Harmon, um, who is Josh's buddy, who was in the military. Ex Marine. Um, kind of living out alone in the woods yeah. mowing golf courses for money and, and I thought that was a, a very nice touch especially in terms of the conversation about um, identity he says before we know he mows golf courses he says do you know how many golf courses there are in where yeah and, and it's like 29 and then you know four or five minutes later whatever it is He's like, I mean, I got to go to work. I don't, you know, I, I don't have time to buy all this fertilizer. I got to go to work. You know, those greens don't mow themselves. <laughs> and so you, you get the sense that his, he's got this axe to grind that's very personal as opposed to like universal or ideological. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah it's, 
it's the Oregon High Desert. Where's the water? Um, so they they buy the boat, um, Josh and, and Dina, because Dina's loaded. We learn that's how they're funding their uh, their uh, bomb making activity. Is she's from Connecticut? I think it mentions and comes from a rich family, but she's uh, more dedicated to this environmental cause. So she moves out to Oregon and gets involved with these. Which is salt of the earth people. You you didn't watch the East, but uh, very similar. I just now put together uh, to Ellen Page's character in the East. Uh, her father is a not a CEO, I don't think, but some sort of high up in this very uh, uh, guilty environmentally uh, corporation. And so she's this like radical environmental activist, and then there's this moment where they're you know trying to make this corporation his corporation atone for their sins and it's this weird father-daughter dynamic and anyway we maybe we'll talk about that later but uh yeah i I think that's that's interesting and and a recurring theme i think in in a lot of the movies we've talked about especially first reformed about large corporations sort of um being the funds for seemingly countercultural, or providing the funds for seemingly countercultural things, so so abundant life church, you know, is really kind of how first the first reformed church exists. But the bulk corporation is is how abundant life, yeah. And so you have this sort of very capitalistic hierarchical structure. Uh, even uh, and that's how this so-called countercultural thing exists the you know for the first reformed church but in reality to have a truly authentically countercultural church or, or some sort of institution or, or activism group you can't have you can't be funded by you know corporate money yeah, yeah. Um, and that's it. Kind of comes up, and when in a uh, night moves, when Josh and, and Harmon are talking about the boat, and Harmon's like, "Well, how much was the boat?" And he says, oh, ten grand." And you're like, "Holy shit!" And what's Peter Sarsgaard's character? Harmon. What is it? Harmon. Harmon. Yeah, he says. Yeah. Uh, I had to look it up because I don't. I don't know if it's really mentioned. He says, "Rich, rich daddy." Yeah, rich daddy. <laughs> yes. Um, and when they go to buy the boat, it's such a it's such a good scene, in my opinion, because they're in like a subdivision. And they roll up in uh, Josh's like big old Ford or whatever his old truck, and they're looking at this old boat that looks like it's from the seventies. And the guy's like, "Oh, I'm gonna miss it. A lot of good water skiing with this boat." And it's named Night Moves, which is just like a perfect like suburban boat name. Yep. And um, uh, Jesse Eisenberg's character is like, "Can I use your bathroom?" And he walks into the house, and it's exactly what you would expect. It's this big, like, McMansion. The t- the giant TV over the mantle is on, and no one's watching it. And it's like golf. Golf, yeah. And he looks out, and he has this, like, giant pool with, like, fountains and all rocks and all this shit. Um, and it's just, like, this just extravagant, like, overconsumptive world that he's well, in. Yeah, what's, what's interesting, though, is there's no, like... Um it's not on any land. The neighbors are like right next to it. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's it is extravagant, but it's very normal. And that's what's so fucked up about it. It's like how normalized 
extravagance is. And Dina's like talking to the guy and like being all, you know, personable. And Josh just doesn't even want to look at the dude. Mm-hmm. Um, he hooks up the boat and the guy says something. He's like, we're good here. <laughs> like gets in the truck and drives away. Um, so yeah, they, they kind of, I like the boat as a symbol of trying to reappropriate this purely just consumer capitalist thing of a speedboat that you buy to like take your family out on the weekends and you mm-hmm. like have a separate storage space that you rent for it and all this bullshit. Mm-hmm. And then they turn it into a, a literal bomb to blow right. up this dam. Right. Yeah, there's a, a, a satisfying irony to that. Yeah. Uh, that is, I mean, of course, problematized by the rest, by everything, but... Um, but everything. <laughs> it, I mean, the, everything in the rest of the movie, but the, uh, but it is satisfying. Um, Jesse Eisenberg, I think, uh, going back to, like, identity, his character, Josh, right? Yes. Um, think is portrayed as very much alone and isolated which I thought was very interesting and again I'm going to compare everything to First Reformed uh, it uh, kind of reminds me of Toller in, in a lot of you know most of that movie but without uh, what's unique about First Reformed is we get Toller's like journal like his monologue his inner his inner yeah with Josh we get nothing we get him just like staring and and being paranoid and being very quiet and yet and it's a different type of film it's a much more verite film than you know uh, than uh, First Reformed and so the way that we get his inner mood and inner you know his thoughts is him clearly not accepting what other people say. The camera is always on him and his face when someone else is giving opinions about environmental activism. And so and so we know that he is thinking something other than what they are saying. Um, anyway, what I, <clears throat> what I was going to say is that I uh, Josh is like Toller uh, throughout most of the film. And then the guy that Josh works for, who's, you know, built this sort of commune thing, is kind of like what we suspect Toller will become at the end of uh, First Reformed. And and not necessarily Toller's going to go build a commune, but that he has sort of... I think it's very interesting that this guy has a couple kids, you know, is married. This is clearly like a family endeavor. And he has not succumbed to this sort of rational pessimism that Josh seems to have succumbed to, that Toller seems to be succumbing to, that, uh, what's the character's name that kills himself in First Reformed? Shit. Mike? Is that it? Yeah, Michael. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that sort of rational pessimism they've succumbed to. And and like First Reform suggests that the real work, the real authentic response to these problems is day in, day out, hard work, changing 
everything. And it's it, it kind of makes me think, and we were talking about this before recording too, and we talked about it on, I think, maybe the past two episodes, but uh, David Wallace Wells and The Uninhabitable Earth, which is by no means a cheery book, right? And he even, he even admits as much later on. He says, you know, alarmist texts of which you might think this is one. And he's like, well, it is because I'm alarmed. I'm alarmed, yeah. Um, that, that really stands out in the book. It's a, it's a good moment. But toward the end of the book, he, he's kind of saying, well, how do we, what do we do? Like, how do we live? And, and he lands kind of in a, a similar kind of position of you just have to be in it. And you have to, you know, interestingly, interestingly enough, he ends with this idea of, you know, you kind of have to have faith in the ability of humans to accomplish things and make things because it's within our hands to create the changes that we need to make to limit the effects of climate change um, to any sort of extent. Um, and it's an interesting kind of idea of like you have to be in it, you have to do the work, it's not enough. Like to, to withdraw yourself from society, which is another thing he talks about in the book, is it's one way, but it's not really helping anyone except for yourself. Um, yeah, and, and, a, and a really good point he makes, is a logical point he makes, is that if the Anthropocene in general has proven anything, it's that human beings can change things. <laughs> yes. It's just... <laughs> if nothing else. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, okay, so how do we change it in a better way? <laughs> you yeah. know, or in the opposite way. Uh yeah, he, he says, there's a, a great sentence that I'll butcher, but he says something like, it sits before us as as authentically or as obviously as a steering wheel. Yeah. You know? Uh, and so, obviously, the uh, implication is we should grab hold of the steering wheel and, and direct yeah. it towards right. a, a better path. Yeah. Humanity take the will. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, that's it's, a, that's a William Carlos Williams. No one, no one to drive the car in two LC. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, that's a good sort of um, explanation of that sort of that character from Night Moves and kind of where Toller ends up. Of the radical thing is to to try to live well and to set up a way that you can live well within the means that humanity needs to live within to, to stop um, sort of affecting the earth quite so much in a negative uh, way. Um, so something that to kind of bring it back to, or tie it back to If a Tree Falls, I was saying you know, this kind of triangle that, that all these films kind of work within, I think, which is the three points are, are monkey wrenching, which is this idea of Sabotage, basically sabotaging uh, bulldozers or machinery, whatever maybe, um, versus just out and out property destruction, which is property destruction, and then the last one, uh, terrorism, which has become a very kind of scary, nebulous thing that kind of fits whatever container you put it in, depending on who you're trying to 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 bring down with it, or at least in this sense, and. To take it back to, to If a Tree Falls before we kind of come back to Night Moves, um, it's really interesting to see that uh, Daniel, is a he's a native New Yorker, grew up in New York, um, was very affected by 9-11, as everyone in New York and everybody in the country kind of was. Um, and 
he even says to the camera at one point, it's ridiculous that I'm being put in the same category as people who committed the attacks on 9-11. Um, so it, it kind of blurs all these lines between what he thought he was doing, what other people think he's doing, what the government thinks he's doing, all that sort of stuff. And in Night Moves, it's kind of interesting because it's it sort of, because they have that added wrinkle of this person that they've killed on accident, um, it sort of blurs those lines even more. Like, okay, well now it's has caused human life, so what do we do about that? Um, and I don't really, I don't really have a question out of this or like a, a definitive statement, but it just all that together was kind of an interesting thing of putting the viewer in this this at least with Night Moves, putting you in this position where you're like, how much can I approve of what has happened? Yeah, and. And that's what I was getting at earlier when I said it feels a little bit disingenuous, and, and and maybe that's too strong of a word, but it it becomes something else. Yeah. You know, it goes from from some sort of environmentally focused thing to like crime and punishment. You know, where it's this this overwhelming guilt. Yeah, say, when when guilt kind of enters the world, that's when it seems to go off the rails. It kind of happens, and if a tree falls, when they realize that they've acted on bad information that's when they're like oh shit how because before they did not no guilt right they burned down the uh, horse slaughterhouse mm-hmm. and they're like it solved the problem <laughs> like we don't care what- right and and there, yeah there's one part where they talk about how the the owners did not have the funds to like rebuild and so yeah. they stopped it and the it's town effective. had been trying and that's the, why the they town continued. had been had been protesting for years yeah it's like well we fixed it right. um but, but yeah, again, once, that's once so. Comes in. It's like the guy in uh, Night Moves says. It's a, yeah, what did you. What, that's, what's really sold? That's one thing. Yeah. And yeah, we yeah, don't yeah. even know why they're doing it, really. It seems ill planned. Well, not ill planned, but sort of like ill chosen target, I guess. Um, and the way they talk about it is even sort of oh, it's cliche. Just, it's the salmon. You're talking about Night Moves? The, yeah. Yeah, where he's like, oh, we. Uh, you know, kill all these fish so we can keep our iPods running all day long. Or yeah, else. which is true in the abstract, but maybe not in, well, in the concrete. Yeah, in general, it's like yeah, we we do utterly fuck with nature to you know to to human ends, and he's not he's not wrong. <laughs> it makes me think of a of a the Big Lebowski you're not wrong you're just an asshole yeah. you know um, but I, I think it comes back to identity things where he like I said he's just kind of this lonely here's an interesting scene in Night Moves that I think is related to this uh, issue is uh, Har- Harmon Yes. Right, uh, and I can't remember anyone's name. Dina, Dina, are having sex. It out. Yeah, just uh, it's a weird scene that didn't really seem to matter, or maybe I don't know. Well, that, I, yeah, it's so forgettable in a, in some ways, but like it's in there, and so we gotta consider it. And I think. Uh, that scene where he hears them having sex 
and just sort of walks away. Yeah. And then he goes and he like tears a limb, a small limb or something off a tree. I can't remember exactly what it is. But then he starts investigating it. Not investigating, but just like staring at it very closely. Yeah. And it's like, I sort of got the feeling that uh, Reichardt is suggesting all of this environmental, all of his environmental focus is a sort of distraction from more uh, fundamental, foundational concerns about loneliness and relationships and all these things. So when he feels lonely in this very sort of concrete example, when this girl that he is clearly close friends with is having sex with this guy that he's also friends with, but she has just met very recently. Um, He walks away and starts, you know, trying to distract himself, I guess, in some way, or I I don't know exactly what he's doing, but I, I, I took it as kind of a, a metaphor for his involvement with environmentalism in general. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because I think it, that's supposed to be the implication that him and Dina were supposed to be like a like maybe a romantic pair later on, but yeah, like maybe he thinks yeah that, that it might yeah. go there, but it's really sort of the relationship's just kind of the like I don't really know. There's no like he's just kind of weird and brooding. And yeah, she's especially like, it's a little uh, there at the end too, where he murders her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's where. It, it, yeah, and that's that's kind of when that's the real climax of the film, really. Like the 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 act of of ecological terrorism is kind of the backdrop, like you're saying, for this guy dealing with like these bigger problems of I'm so thoroughly alone that it's fucking mind numbing. It's kind of what the implication is. But 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 that loneliness too, like like first reformed, it's like chicken or the egg. Is it a result? Yeah. Of his knowledge and and him, his grappling with these environmental issues, or is that just how he is? And so he gravitates towards these depressing yeah. things. Um, when first reform it's, it's more it's more like self imposed, right? It's more like an exile that Toller, you know, is pushing people away, pushes Esther away, and uh, really only when he meets Amanda Seyfried, whose name I can't the character um, I can't remember, Mary, Mary, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah of course. <laughs> when he meets her, that's kind of when he forms some sort of meaningful human right, Well, he, other than Michael, but Michael kills himself. And he doesn't, Toller doesn't gravitate towards it. He yeah. It is brought to him. We don't know how Josh came to environmentalism. He's just already yeah. there when the movie begins. Yeah. yeah. In Medias Ray, or Medias Ray, or Media Ray, or Media Res, even. Say what? In, in medias res. In medias res, yeah. However you say it. In the middle of things. Yes. Um, so he's kind of fully formed, poorly by the time we get there. Um, and I, I will say that, like, Eisenberg, I guess he's gotten real good at the uh, dead behind the eyes, young white dude, mm-hmm. after playing Zuckerberg. Um, <laughs> and yeah. he brings that same sort of, like, cold detachment yeah but driven detachment I guess like mm-hmm. 
he's very much concerned only with the mission and then once they do the mission he seems kind of aimless sort of like he that's the only time we see him smile is he wakes up the morning after and he's kind of like pleased with himself that mm-hmm. they've accomplished this thing um, but the, yeah then it quickly becomes about paranoia and like is Dina gonna talk and mm-hmm. what do we do and um, culminates with him strangling her to death um, seemingly premeditatedly yeah um, because he's at that party he goes to some weird like like crust punk barn party thing party. where he's just sitting party by himself yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just sort of like off by himself and that's when uh, Alia Shawkat or whatever her name is oh yeah she, she, yeah. she shows up as she's a character named Surprise and she shows Maybe. up and yeah and she uh, clearly like has a crush on him and is like trying to talk to him and he's just gone at that point right um and then he goes and he, he murders Dina and after he kills her he drives out of town and then he calls Harmon and this kind of reinforces what you're talking about where he calls him and he says you know Dina I forget how he phrases it but it's like she she's out or she quit like she quit it's like a, but it was an accident and she like, quit but not on purpose yeah <laughs> it's like clearly if anyone listened to this they're trying to speak in code but if like a cop was listening to this it would be so transparent yeah and uh, Harmon's like yeah, man. Well, you you just need to you need to disappear. You need to stay disappeared. And Josh is like, well, I think we should just like go. Like, I can come pick you up. We can like go. So, like, you can tell he just wants to like He's he lonely. needs someone to yeah, talk he needs to. Some sort of connection. And Harmon's like, no, man. You just have to you have to disappear. You gotta get lost. You gotta get lost good or something yeah. like that. And he like breaks his phone and like sticks it in the back of some dude's truck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then at the end, walks into a sporting goods store. So. He hasn't left town yet, right? I don't know. I don't know if he's, like, in the next town over or, like, where he is. He drove through the night, I guess, because he, he leaves town at night and then it's daytime. It's, like, the morning when he gets there. Okay, yeah. Um, but I don't know what that means. I don't know if he's very far away or what's going on. No. But he goes into the sporting goods store and is just kind of walking around and then ends up filling out a job application to work there. Yeah, I, I think I really like I like the ending more the more I think about it and again I finished this movie like an hour and a half ago but um, I like it more the more I think about it because as the movie progresses you it, it does a good job of more and more depicting the situation that he's in as kind of ideal before the before and just after the uh before he destroys the dam and so he's like living on this commune with these pretty cool people with with uh, women his age who don't seem to be involved you know what I'm saying it's like Aaliyah Shawkat and uh, oh, what's the woman's name she's an inherent vice um, I don't remember either. Oh, but gonna, she's there I can't remember her name. Anyway, she's got a very small role in this yeah. movie. Um, and so, yeah, he's got the... And he's just, like, chopping wood and and selling vegetables. And it's like this... And his, like, this weird sort of 
uh, room he has. It's almost like a like, like a, a teepee. Yeah, like a yurt almost. Yeah, but like it's made out of wood. It's, it's so fucking cool. It is. And it's you really, don't really fucking cool. And I think it's to to the filmmaker's credit that you don't really see how cool it is until after the they blow up the dam. Yeah, and you're like, oh wait, his life kind of rules. Like, yeah, his life is had that awesome. Life. Yeah, and it's like you wonder like what it was that drove him to this. Um, to this act but but at the same time I guess that could sort of make you think that he really is like sort of ideologically convicted because it's not like he's just like personally how could he be so personally miserable if he's living this sort of ideal life yeah Uh, anyway all that to say his life rules uh, but you don't really see the, you know, the full extent to which it does until after this act, and like you said, clearly this, you know, at least one of the women he works with has is trying to engage with him, trying to you know be more intimate with him, and, and he just doesn't want anything to do with it, and uh, and again that reminds me of Toller, yeah. And it also reminds me of an article that I think I've mentioned before about uh, I can't remember. It's by it's by a guy named or I don't know if it's a guy or a girl. Uh, Val Plumwood. Val. I don't know. It's like Pat. I don't know. Uh, that's uh, about understanding uh, environmental issues more and, and, and the word. Plumwood uses this relationally, you know, um, as opposed to this sort of subject-object um, that is the legacy of rationalism. Um, and so, uh, in the in the character that runs this sort of commune in Night Moves, I think you see that argued for too, that the same person doing things right ecologically is the person is a people person who loves you know loves his wife and loves his kids and is engaged in the community um, it's not a misanthropic environmentalism is not inherently misanthropic which is you know part of the legacy of a thorough somewhat like go out and live in a cabin or Ted Kaczynski right go out and live in a cabin in the woods yeah. be uh, you know intelligent solitary genius out in the you know wilderness plotting against society or whatever it may be um, see, that's, just, uh, Wallace Wells mentions Kaczynski doesn't he someone's reading Ted point, Kaczynski yeah. or something yeah um, I, I, something else that it's, it goes by pretty quickly but I think it's important in Night Moves is you have this kind of meta commentary on film but also on kind of how environmental issues are presented kind of rhetorically and it's when they're at the the screening of the documentary that some like college student from like it's implied that she's Jackie Christensen was that I can't remember the main character's names but I remember the filmmaker of that fictional film was Jackie Christensen (laughs) Uh, and it's implied that she's there from the University of Oregon I think so she's here from Eugene right which is isn't that where University of Oregon is, maybe? I think so. Anyway. Um, I thought that was in Portland. 
No, I could be wrong. Um, I think it's in Eugene. It's sort of implied that like she's the college kid that's like doing things, or the professor maybe, mm-hmm. and she's here to show us this documentary. And it's all very kind of like boilerplate, like we have to save the environment, like pictures of wells and shit, and, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of day after tomorrow stuff. Um, which is not to say it's a bad thing, but it's very kind of like run of the mill mm-hmm. type stuff. And so they finish the screening, and the guy hosting is like, do, do we have any questions? And then Dina and some other, other uh, people are asking her questions. And I think Dina's was something like, well, what's your solution? Like, what's your, how do you fix this problem? What should we be doing? And uh, her response is, well, I don't believe in one big solution. I believe in lots of small solutions, which is kind of the same. It's different, but similar to what the, the owner of the commune says later on of like these small things compiling to make one big good thing. And you can, it's kind of foreshadowing what they're going to do with the boat, but it shows Dina's sort of like dismissiveness of people. And Josh is kind of in the background, like not saying anything, just like watching, kind of like, like, yeah, <laughs> one big act. That's what we need. See, yeah, I, I kind of, that's interesting you read it that way, because I sort of thought Josh was agreeing with what she was saying, and that he was maybe understa- maybe misunderstanding her call for small acts as small acts of Yeah, if everybody blows up a dam. You know, if, yeah, if everyone in every town blows up a dam, then that'll form meaningful action. Uh but maybe not. I don't know. Maybe he was. Maybe the sort of reaction on his face meant he was disgusted with it, or you know, I don't. I don't know. Maybe it was weird to, to that they blew up this dam. Like a, where I'm from, we had a lot of uh, like works progress administration man made lakes. <laughs> I lived like real close to a couple of them. One of them had a giant dam that they used to make a. A spillway and like park and all that. We used to go there on like field trips in school, um, so it's it's an interesting kind of thing to look at um, these sort of intersections of man-made things with nature. Um, it, damming a river is one thing; it's not the same thing as making a man-made lake. I don't know which one of those would be considered more destructive on kind of a natural level, um, but it's interesting to like go to a road that used to run into a valley or something where a man-made lake is and you see where they broke it off and mm-hmm. just goes into the lake, that sort of stuff. Um, so all that sort of stuff was, was interesting um, and the idea of what it would be like to for a dam to explode. And you sort of... It, that was another kind of clever filmmaking thing is you're yeah, on the truck it. driving away and you hear the boom and you hear water rushing and that's kind of it. And I knew it because... It just, it's not the type of movie where you're going to see an explosion. Yeah. You know? Um, and it would probably cost a lot of money to, to do something <laughs> like that. How it um, But yeah, and to mention Wallace Wells again, I think at one point he's talking about um, people withdrawing from society and having this sort of like hermetic existence of I'm just going to get away from all the shit and just figure my life out and uh, he's talking about climate nihilism a few pages later and he says well say what you he basically does the Babowski uh, what the Bukowski uh, Lebowski <laughs> not 
Bubinski, what the he does the big Lebowski line. The big of, Bukowski. Uh, <laughs> big Bukowski. Uh, he does the Lebowski line of uh, you know say what you want about withdrawing from society. At least it's an ethos. <laughs> I noticed um, that, which I thought I thought was really interesting. And, but it is. It, it, say what you want about the tenets of national socialism. Yeah. At least it's an ethos, dude. It's an ethos. <laughs> Um, but it, it kind of makes me think in regard to these films and like every film we've watched, I guess, and the Wallace Wells book and all these other books, which is thinking that like all of these different sets of ethics or ways of looking at things, like I, I can't decide if I think it's acceptable or dangerous or whatever, maybe to think of them all as being equally valid because then you get into a situation where it's like, if they're all valid, then none of them matter. Like, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, that that really reminds me of... Uh, I think I maybe briefly mentioned this on the Captain Fantastic episode, the movie The Ballad of Jack and Rose, and which is made by Rebecca Miller. Uh, I think I was just thinking about this because I watched a clip of Paul Dano on who's in The Ballad of Jack and Rose on the Criterion channel. It was a really cool interview. I love, in love with Paul Dano. He's just like really cool dude. He should it, work more, I think. Yeah, but I think he just directed a movie. Anyway. Yeah, um, with... Uh, shit, I just derailed you for no reason. What's the dude's name? Fuck. Uh, Gyllenhaal in it, right? Oh, really? I don't know. Yeah, don't know. and it's a good actress, too, who I can't remember who. Anyway. Ballad of Jack and Rose, what I was what I was saying is the kind of epiphany of that movie that Daniel Day Lewis's character has. You know, he's sort of in this weird, contentious, um, antagonistic relationship with a suburban developer played by Bo Bridges. And this epiphany that he has is that like their differences of opinion are just opinion and they're um, I can't remember the word they use like preferences or taste or something like that like basically you know all these sort of ecologically responsible ideas I have and all of these ideas that this developer has that the Bo Bridges character has uh, that are destructive and all these things are the difference between these things is just ideological and it's a matter of taste. And my problem with that is that it's just pretty close to nihilistic to suggest that like someone who's living in a way that is, you know, with a very small carbon footprint that is not, uh, that, you know, that's building their home in conjunction with the world uh, that is um, trying very deliberately to live in harmony with nature and this person who is just like clear-cutting nature so that people can you know be more com- be you know absurdly comfortable and never have to think about the environment uh, to equate that you know to say that is a matter of taste is is what you know what Wallace Wells calls uh, climate nihilism. Yeah, um, but it's masquerading as acceptance of the viewpoint of another. Right, um, and that's where it, it kind of gets. And 
Like, in a lot of ways, it's what all these Nazi assholes are trying to do, of, like, I'm just trying to have a debate. I'm trying to debate you in the marketplace of ideas. And it's like, no, you want your viewpoint to be validated as... This is stupid. I just fucked up my whole sentence. Validated as valid. Um, you want your whole viewpoint to be made valid by people mm-hmm. acknowledging it as a stance from which you can argue and not just a reason to be ostracized from society. It's like, it reminds me of how, I think Zizek talks about how the most politically correct people are these, like, ultra-conservatives who deride political correctness. Yeah. You know, it's like, my my politically incorrect views deserve to be heard, you know, which is a an assertion <laughs> that is made by, you know, that is politically correct. Yeah. Uh, that there is a place for all voices. You know, that is a, a tenet of political correctness. And the people saying this, you know, the loudest are people who think they're talking shit about political correctness. Yeah, it's like the Peterson-Zizek debate where Peterson's like, it's the cultural Marxist, and Zizek's like, who are you talking about? Who are these Marxists? <laughs> where are they? They I haven't met anyone who's a Marxist. He's, he says, except David Harvey. <laughs> David Harvey's like the only Marxist I've ever met which is great yeah. it'd be cool if Paul Harvey was a Marxist the rest of the story who's the rest of the story old radio guy anyway who? Marxist Paul Harvey would be funny to me he was just like an old boomer guy that would like tell weird little slice of life stories on the radio and at the end he'd be like and that's the rest of the story and that is the plight of the proletariat um, that that Paul Dano movie is called Wildlife, and Wildlife. it stars Jake Gyllenhaal and Carrie Mulligan. Wow! Um, so probably good. Um, Watch the, it's a little. I think it's a little show uh, on a Criterion Channel called Adventures in Movie Going, and the interview with Paul Dano is is very very nice, and he says a lot of nice things about Jim Carrey. <laughs> Wes Anderson and Paul Thomas Anderson and Has he worked with Jim Carrey? No, he's just like he's like saying when he was a kid he like Jim Carrey was oh, his favorite well, yeah, actor and yeah. I'm like yeah, of me course. too. If you grew up in the 90s, yes. All I'm saying is my uh, I'm a bigger fan of Paul Dano than I thought after watching this interview. And I loved Paul Dano before. <laughs> Can you believe it? Paul and Eli Sunday. Yeah. Um so, the East. Is there anything pressing about the East that you think should be brought up? Um, I feel like just because we mentioned it last week as one of the movies we were going to talk about, we should talk about it a little bit and say Night Moves is the better of the two films, for sure. And I didn't realize... I had seen this movie before. Really? Like, I remember, <laughs> I remember having seen parts of it, but then as I watched it again, I was like, oh, yeah, I know what happens here. Um, and I really, I'll say this, I really like Brit Marling. I really liked Another Earth. And I really was surprised to find that I liked The OA, which is the same director. Um, um, that uh, did The East. So... But but the the East has some problems. It it's like it can't decide if it wants you know how sort of mainstream it wants to be. There's some uh, almost like you know 
similar to the end of Night Moves, it kind of gets bigger. It gets sort of genre-ish. Um, there's there's a few little moments in the East where the acting is a little. I don't know. It, it's hard. It's hard to criticize because I agree with the perspective of the film, and you know it takes as its targets like pharmaceutical industry. Um, who else is uh, uh, these companies that are polluting the water supply? Um, yeah, so like it has the right enemies, um, but ultimately it kind of suggests you should work within the system, um, and, and that what we need are informed people within the system, within in power. So Britt Marling plays an FBI agent who goes under. I guess it's FBI. Anyway, she goes undercover, infiltrates this uh, radical environmental activist group, eco-terrorist group called The East. And the movie goes to great lengths to show what a what a normal gal Britt Marling is. At the beginning, she's like eating McDonald's. She's got this very sort of bro-y boyfriend who's like talking about watching the game at the bar after work. Uh, but then after she infiltrates this group, she kind of has a thing for Stella, not Stella, uh, Alexander Skarsgård. She had a thing for Stella, sir. Yeah. That would be. Who's? Hell yeah. He's awesome. Um, and so there's like a, a, a romantic thing between them, but she starts to understand their critique uh, of society and to see that they are basically right about everything that they say, but again, like Night Moves, what is problematized is not the substance of their beliefs, but the means by which they try to affect change. Yeah. Um, and and you see Britt Marling's character, Sarah, I think her name is, again, like Night Moves, has, you know, she's, she's not on board when they start to kind of hurt people. Um, and she's, she starts to believe in their in their message, but not the means by which they try to convey this message. They, uh, it's a satisfying scene to me where they, uh, you know, they're just like crazy hippies living in the woods, but then they, they get all dressed up because they've, they've found a way into this, uh, pharmaceutical corporations, uh, kind of drug release party. Um, and, and and one of the guys in the east is a doctor who knows all about these sort of shady pharmaceutical dealings, and so uh, they find a way to infiltrate this party, and they there's almost like a she's all that sort of transformation moment where Alexander Skarsgård is just like crazy hippie, long hair, beard everywhere, and then it's like oh he's like an Abercrombie model now. Uh, and it's you know most, all all the other characters are the same way, but it's a satisfying scene when they infiltrate this party and they um, put the liquid form of the drug that these people are celebrating the release of into all of these like high up you know CEO types into their champagne. 
that they're toasting with to the drug and they drink it and then on the news you see several weeks later these people are like developing all kinds of health problems and so they've been given a taste of their own medicine you know um, but the fact that they're hurting people is is what Sarah Britt Marling's character has a a hang up with and eventually one of the targets of the East is the agency that Sarah works for and Patricia Clarkson plays her boss who I really, I really like Patricia Clarkson uh, not the character but her as an actor and you realize that I should know the characters now, but uh, Alexander Skarsgård's character he's sort of a little bit ahead of the game and he, he knows who Sarah is and he tries to sort of use her against this agency and he doesn't really have to because she believes she, she's been converted to this ideology anyway they take down the um, they take down all the corporations that they want to take down and it ends with Sarah sort of being who she is and using her inside position in this agency to expose the things that the East has brought to light and so that's what I mean when I say it suggests that the way change, meaningful change will happen is that people within the system have to be informed and engaged in these issues so it, it, like I said, it, it's not. It doesn't feel like as serious of a movie as Night Moves, and certainly not as uh, uh, serious as If a Tree Falls, for obvious reasons. Uh, but it's cool. There's some cool moments, uh, but it's just not as uh, not as psychologically honest as either one of the other movies. And doesn't really try to be. I'm, you know, I don't want to fault it for that. It's kind of. It's kind of... Like a thriller? Almost. Yeah, yeah. It, it's trying to be entertaining. but And at the same time, bring some attention to kind of fucked up issues yeah. environmentally. I think it's interesting that um, one of their targets is a, a pharmaceutical company and that she gets upset at, at the, the East for giving these people the drug that they're going to sell to the public and it having negative effects. Um, yeah. Makes me think of now that they're actually kind of starting to prosecute the people that were pushing uh, these you know incredibly strong narcotics on the public they just um, convicted the guy or you know a group of people behind uh, fentanyl making it you know available mm-hmm. um, I don't know they probably won't ever do this but if they could bring down like Purdue Pharma for um, the Oxycontin um I don't know, genocide, I would call it, of, of a lot of, of Americans. Well, what's what's interesting, too, is as I was watching it last night, I was thinking, wait, why is a pharmaceutical company in a movie about environmental activism? And, I, you know, and it's, it's about human repercussions and human devastation. And, and yeah. I, the more I thought about it, the more I kind of liked it because it was, we tend to forget that humans are a species you know you're talking about species extinction and and uh, endangerment like 
corporate abuse of the world is an industri- you know, industrial abuse of the world in general is an endangerment to people. Not, I mean, <laughs> this sounds so counterintuitive to say, not just the land and animals, because <laughs> that, that's people are less likely to be concerned about that, but within environmental circles, maybe you are a little bit less inclined to care about the human yeah, cost. You try to because you're trying to compensate for that lack. Yeah. You kind of go, it's a, maybe an overcompensation in some ways. Uh, and I, I can just hear a sort of environmental activist hearing that and being like, this is fucking bullshit, you know. <laughs> and maybe it is, I don't know. But uh, I thought it was, in, all that to say, I thought it was interesting that the first target of the East is a pharmaceutical company whose victims are largely human beings as opposed to, you know, the river or, yeah. or, or whatever. And, you know, it's I think it's important to try not to be completely... Uh, anthropocentric in, in thinking about these issues but at, you do have to consider like the areas the uh, that are on the coast or low-lying or, or you know in uh, near deserts that are going to be hit the hardest um, by climate change and, you know there are people that live there right there are communities and, and countries located there so there will be kind of a human toll <clears throat> so you know don't, not to be anthropocentric but at some point that I think is going to be what drives people to do any kind of changes like if we do nothing way more people are going to die so let's do something mm-hmm. um, so it, it's interesting to think about it. and especially because the farther from kind of centers of, of capital power you get the more human beings are kind of thought of more like animals I would say than and I'm saying like in the eyes of capital animals are kind of lesser life forms well people without money lesser life forms mm-hmm. um, especially when they're in uh, other countries and they're different colors <laughs> they're, with weird names yeah they speak languages that sound weird I don't what's um, up with that yeah just speak English fuck um, so yeah it's you don't want to be anthropocentric but also you do need to also consider humans because you don't want to be anthropocentric, but you don't want to be misanthropic, you know. Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. Um, so talking about like all these species going extinct, well, humans could very well be on that list. Well, and and that I guess that's the point I was trying to make in talking about the East is that, in a way, it's anthropocentric to not see the human cost as the nat- as fluid with the natural cost because yeah. humans are part of nature which is a tenet of people who critique anthropocentrism it's yeah it's kind of it's, it's, kind a, it's of a weird kind of yeah uh, you know double helix structure that <laughs> yeah. we have going yeah. on um, but no no I, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down makes sense so I'm kind of glad well, I mean, not glad, but I don't feel like I missed anything by not watching these. No, uh, it was it was entertaining, um, and I I like I, I really like Britt Marling. I think she writes really, and she co-wrote these. She writes really smart movies that are that that somehow manage to be entertaining and you know somewhat intellectual at the same time, and I. I'm just really glad that she uh, has a space, you know, gets gets funding for these things because they're 
they're just she makes just really cool things and I was like I said I was really surprised at how much I liked the OA that's very second season yeah kind of out of nowhere yeah I, uh, was anyone clamoring for that I don't know but I'm glad <laughs> uh, that's such a weird show and and uh, very imaginative and uh, yeah so um, the East is very watchable but I, I don't think it was it's like like I said earlier maybe a little bit too watchable um, the way Night Moves isn't as watchable yet probably more worth watching. Yeah, because there are a lot of moments. That Night Moves is very kind of a slow burn. Like there are scenes that are just very slow. The music's very kind of like my, ominous. There were some scenes though where my heart rate was up. When, they, when they're leaving the boat and they're yeah. like paddling away and then it's before you hear the explosion when the camera's on them in the car and they're all just like breathing really heavily and it's both because they've just been rowing and then running through the woods but it's also because their adrenaline is just like and they do the there's a great like little I felt like a tip of the hat to to lesser films when they get in the truck and he goes to start it and it doesn't turn over and he's like fuck and then he does it again and it it starts yeah I was like I don't like that a lesser film, they would have abandoned the truck and started running, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, I liked it. Um, one thing I want to mention that we didn't talk about very much is is how much. If you have any sort of empathy, you leave. If a tree falls, just thinking like, "Fuck the police," so hard. Yeah. I, as I was watching, I think I texted you when they were like rubbing the. Uh, that jelly, what is it like? Pepper jelly, pepper. Sp- what is it? That I don't even know. I don't know. Some sort of burn. It was some sort of weaponized spice chemical thing. Yeah, that they're rubbing in this woman's eyes, and she's just hanging on like a trooper in this protest. And uh, you, you just, you just can't help but think like, who are these policemen? Like what? And they interview a couple of them. At least like, one of them. What are they fighting for? Like, is your $28,000 a year salary worth <laughs> abuse? Your, your insurance like, that probably has like a through-the-roof deductible. Um, well, they interview the one, and he says something to the effect of, well, you know, when they're throwing rocks and bottles, you know, it's kind of, he doesn't say it's life or death, but it's kind of what the implication is. Or maybe he does say it's life and death. But he's like, we know when they're coming at you, you kind of, you have to defend yourself. And it's like, all these video clips we're seeing, they're not doing any of that. Or at least most of them are. Yeah, it's it's, it's largely peaceful protests. And they should, so we get all these video clips and it's when they're talking about kind of how this portion of the ELF got um, radicalized and started moving toward these these bigger kind of uh, examples of property damage. Uh, property destruction you see people doing peaceful protests handcuffing themselves to trees and to desks and offices and all that sort of stuff and you see the police like you're saying they come in and just rub that jelly shit in the in the lady's eye and they're like well if you unless you let go we're gonna do the other one that kind of and, they're just talking and, and people, she's like, so conscious of it too like uh, someone if it's not her or someone else in the shot is saying you know, like violent means should not be used against nonviolent protesters. Like, yeah. like that's what we're told. We're told like nonviolent protest is ethically correct and that it works. Right. But 
they leave out the part where you're very likely to be assaulted. That I think I think it's probably very rare in in any sort of activism to find radicalized people who have not first tried yeah. less radical forms. We're and I think what them. radicalizes them is the failure of nonviolence. And they give you that great um, example from I forget what the town in Oregon is that they're talking about. Maybe it was in, around Eugene or something, which is kind of the hotbed for all the elf stuff and it was at the setting of uh, Night Moves too um, and they're going to cut all of these old trees to put in a parking lot for a business across the street and so all of the protesters go and they go up in the trees and they're you know going to protest because the city had like pulled a fast one and said we're going to cut them down before Monday so we can't have this hearing and all that kind they of stuff they did like the day before yeah, yeah. And, and the protesters are really just there to make sure that the hearing happens in hopes to save the trees. Mm-hmm. So there, it's literally like as non-offensive of a protest as you can have. And I think if you ask most people around that town, would you rather us cut these trees down to build a parking lot or not, they would say, no, leave the trees. Um, but it's you know, like we, we were talking about Nashville. Yeah. Cutting how many down. how many people do you think that they told about that? Yeah. Like random Nashvilleians who cut, knew that cut, They cut down a bunch of trees for the, uh, the NFL draft. NFL draft, Which yeah. is fucking ignorant for a lot of reasons. <laughs> But in the in the documentary, you see that the cops go up in cherry pickers and spray these people with pepper spray. They cut the people's pants off and like spray their balls with pepper spray, and <laughs> yeah. and like pull them out of these trees and cut them down. And uh, all these sort of people there. In their defense, those in their in the defense, they're like fuck those trees. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. like what were they doing? Uh, what good were they? You can't park on a tree. Um, so. <laughs> They uh, a lot of people in the film that were involved with the ELF back then were like, yeah, that was kind of a turning point for a lot of people. That like they don't just don't give a fuck and they'll use violent means to make sure that they and the the other the will. other turning point they say is they've they're sort of staked out. In, is it some sort of park where they build this sort of temporary camp and they camp out in this like weird little like fortress they make yeah that was a they were going to start logging they come through with fucking bulldozers destroy it and it's this destruction of their you know camp that they built that you know the guy that they're interviewing says like when they saw how aggressively the authorities were opposed to them that's when they were like all right, it's time to actually do something and I think it's not long after that that the guy Jake who ends up being the the rat at the end uh, uh, takes starts taking more radical action and you know burns the place to the ground anyway it's worth mentioning that Jake was I think that was his name too um, was also on heroin when the cops or this FBI or whoever brought him in yeah so he was not in a very good position yeah and I've I'm worth like, I don't. I don't want to be too, too hard on him and say you know I don't want to call him our rat. Who? Well, they so, someone in them. the film. Someone in the film says, you know, wait, wait till you're in this situation. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of the, <laughs> before he sort of. And they, they intimidate him and say like, we're gonna make sure you never see your kid again and that sort of. So, it's what he did sucks, but you can kind of empathize a little bit, right? Um. But that, that that scene where you're talking about where they're, they're blocking the logging road to get to these, like, old-growth trees and this, um, 
government-owned land, that's where it kind of, there are parts of this documentary that are almost like, not even conspiracy theory, but that sort of like, the whole world is set up to fuck us sort of feeling I got, like, made me feel paranoid, where they're talking about like, Bureau of Land Management and like, the National Park Service and all this sort of shit, and they're saying like, these people aren't here to protect the land, they're here to administer the land, they're here to like, if the government needs, he wants to cut down this lumber, they're here to find the lumber, right. that sort of thing. Right. There are, yeah. It's protected on behalf of the people who can destroy it. Yeah. And that's, it's sort of like Judith Butler's idea, the precarious, where to, to give yourself over to the security of a state is to also submit yourself to the violence of that state. She calls it like trading one potential violence for another. Um, so in this looking at it and saying, well, that's a national park. It's protected by the government. It's like, yeah, well, the government can also, you know, steamroll it and blacktop it tomorrow if, if that's what they really want, mm-hmm. if that's what's going to meet the bottom line. Um, and that part of the film just sort of like, it was really depressing. And it sort of like underlines the sort of motivations that the people in the film had and like why they felt like this was so... Um, urgent so as to you know burn down someone's business they burned down the, the main office of a logging company and the people in the logging company talk about it as if like all of their loved ones died mm-hmm. <laughs> you see them like walking it standing in the rebuilt office like oh it was terrible it's like you're in the office like yeah nothing that all that the insurance paid for yeah you know um and it's just property man I can't remember I, I think it's Jeje who talks about how uh, I think it's in The Pervert's Guide to Ideologies. I can't remember what movie he's talking about or what he's talking about, but he basically makes the point of like how often people mistake um, theft. Like, like uh, he's talking about how how much jail time you get for theft compared to murder, as if taking someone's stuff were equivalent to taking their life uh, like if that's not an indication of like just crazy materialism I don't know what is yeah that's like just this idea of, of the importance of property and like I like my stuff I don't want people to take my stuff of course yeah. not right but it's like a, where do you draw the line like that you're willing to you see someone trying to steal your TV and you shoot them Right. Like, because you have the right to. Yeah, because yeah, and you're in the right, and you suffer no consequences. It's like, well, you still murdered someone. Yeah, you know? over uh, something over utterly wood. replaceable. Yeah, um, and even if it's not replaceable, it doesn't. It's not irreplaceable in the same way a human life is irreplaceable. Yeah, yeah, and it's just when when you rely so heavily on this like neoliberal idea that you have to be in the market and you have to be competing and you have to get what's yours and protect what's yours. It's it, it's easy to fall in and, and be like, oh yeah, well they burned down that business. Of course that's wrong. They should go to prison um, without thinking about any of the other stuff that goes into it. And me, like, like I don't know, maybe it's just like the 15-year-old like Rage Against the Machine listening, you know, anarchist dipshit. But I was watching it and I was like, fuck yeah, do it, do it. <laughs> Um, yep. Like I said, like the, the, you know, the cops just throwing tear gas and the people picking it up and chucking it back at him. I was like, yeah, that's that's how you deal with that. 
Um, I, I, yeah, I feel the same way. You know, watching the news coverage you know, a couple of years ago from Ferguson and hearing popular opinion on it uh, on the news and everything, I felt very sort of alone in in my opinions on it. I was just like, burn it down. Like, I, I remember NPR doing a story, I think it was during Ferguson, and they had, you know, some fucking commentator commentating about these riots that were happening. And they had a man from Ferguson who was doing some rioting himself. And uh, the man was uh, black and the commentator was white. And so the, the commentator tries to make some sort of point to this man about how it's actually counterintuitive and, and <laughs> have you considered the ramifications <laughs> blah 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 and this guy says uh, he says something like I am sick of listening to white people tell me tell black people how to deal with their oppression Yeah, it's like that is another component of the oppression uh, and I was just like in my car just like yes um <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which is complicated in and of itself, but you know, yeah. Uh, it's I, a, it kind of makes me think of uh, Toller telling the story about his grandfather and like standing on holy ground, right? And like, mm-hmm. uh, like as reductionist as it is, I think there comes a point where somewhat something like that happens, and in your gut you have a feeling like either this is right or this is wrong, and in a moment like that, when you hear that dude say that, you're like, that's right. Mm-hmm. Like I, I feel like that's unequivocally the correct response to have in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it gets complicated because there are plenty of people that are like in the opposite camp or in some wild third camp. And hmm. I think what we can conclude from tonight's discussion is that eco terrorism is a misnomer. At least in, at least in the, the scenarios in, that we're talking about, the scenarios presented by If a Tree Falls, for yes. sure. Um, yeah, yeah, and because terrorism implies that you're trying to, it, it's kind of an anthropocentric concept in itself because it's implying that you're trying to put terror in the minds of hearts and minds of other people. Um, so, who are you terrorizing by burning down the office of a logging company? The people in the film, like the, the people that work for the logging company, are like, at, at the end, the guy says, well, you know, we went to bed at night wondering, are we going to be safe and all that kind of... It's yeah, like, but you went to bed. Yeah, but you, <laughs> yeah. But you knew you that nothing your, was going to happen. In your Under Armour golf shirt. Yeah, which is so <laughs> perfect that he was wearing that. Um, and so it's like, where are they putting the terror? It's not in the minds of you or me or, like, people getting up and going to work in the morning. It's in corporations, right? Corporations are people, right? Can you terrorize corporate... If you terrorize corporations, are you terrorizing people? Um, a person. Yeah. And it's... I don't... It's at least, like you said, at least in the scenarios that we see in If a Tree Falls, it's not no. terrorism. No. It's destruction, of course, yeah. Um, but and that's the point. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, complicated issues, but I think in that case, they're not... Um, or it's not terrorism. You know, 9-11 changed everything. 
if, if you take nothing else away uh, from this. So next week we're going to go back to some sort of bigger bigger fish. We're going to get fry. back to our roots. <laughs> we're going to talk about 2004's The Day After Tomorrow. Uh, directed by Roland Emmerich, and we might talk a little bit about Independence Day as well. He's sort of a he. he we maybe could have done a an uh, auteur episode on him, but I think it'll be okay just to talk mostly about Day After Tomorrow. And I'm, I'm we're having difficulties with these three movie weeks. It's a lot of movies to it, watch. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it, it, especially, I mean, even when you don't watch all three of them, like me, <laughs> still quite a bit. But, um, yeah, we're going to talk about Day After Tomorrow, get into um, the wolves and all that sort of, the ice and the, the wolves in New York, which is... I forgot about that. Strange. Um, yeah, we brought up Hall earlier, so we'll be talking about Hall next week. Hall only went up after Day After Tomorrow. He's, yeah. he's He's improved with age, for sure. And then he, every now and then, he'll make some, like, random weird shit, like... Prince of Persia. Yeah. Well, I was thinking like Nightcrawler, which is is good, but but kind of unexpected. Nightcrawler's cool. I think Prisoners is Prisoners, a fantastic yeah. movie. Velvet, something. Oh, he made some, some like weird Netflix movie. Or I, I think the guy who made Nightcrawler made that. Tony Gilroy. Yeah. Um, is it Tony Gilroy? It's like paintings or murdering people. Something, something I didn't like see that. that one. Anyway, um, early earlier Gyllenhaal. Mm-hmm. Post Donnie Darko, right? Yep. So this might have been like his big Hollywood thing. After I, I don't know. I'll have to look at his uh, October Sky. His filmography. Was before that, yeah. Oh yeah, I fucking love October Sky. That's a film we could do potentially. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah. Next week, day after tomorrow. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Anthropod Tweets. Um, as always, available on SoundCloud, Spotify, and the It Oons. Um, Itunis. Itunis. Um, and I guess that's it. That's all I got. Wreck shit. Fight cops, punch Nazis, what, all that stuff. Well, what's the title of the creator line? Uh, fuck shit. What is it? Burn. Fuck school. God damn it. Like, <laughs> get it all messed up. Uh, I, I'm not going to. Think of it. What what I'll do is I'll put we'll, we'll like when we edit this I'll put it in the clip afterwards or something so uh, yeah, so I don't just, sound like such a I'll do I'll do another remix where I just loop that over <laughs> yes. and over again. Yes. All right.